that will get my attention yeah. every single time. I'll show you now why when we're done. We have a, a deal right now, 500000 earnest money, non-refundable and released. Wow. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19-year-old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real-life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. With us today is Tyler Haig, Senior Vice President with Colliers International. Tyler is a multifamily investment sales broker and leads the Midwest apartment practice for Colliers. He's brokering deals in 12 different states, and his team is on pace for $1 billion of property transactions this year. Today, we're going to dive into how these different markets are performing, the political and business environment today, how different states are faring, how large commercial deals are coming together today, prices and valuation, and then different deal strategies and deal terms you need to have in your offer to win deals today. Tyler, welcome. Thank you. Excited to be here. Great. Well, yeah, I guess maybe before we jump into like what's going on today, and I mean, the whole point of this, like what's interesting, like you can read a, like a research report, like how's the market doing? What's happened like the last six months? We were just talking like you're going to to our building after this, like mm -hmm. you're in the market every day. You know where these markets are at today. So, I mean, that's really what I want to get into like in this podcast, but I think just kind of first, maybe let's jump into how you got started in, in real estate. Yeah, absolutely. So I would probably start off the saying that I'm a little bit of an anomaly because I've worked at the same company my whole career. I graduated college in uh, 07. Uh, the summer before that, I was lucky enough to intern actually at Collier's and, uh, you know, went into college uh, first semester knowing I had a job, which was awesome. And then, you know, upon graduation, uh, ended up, even though I wanted to do brokerage, ended up in the asset management, property management realm. And then, you know, 10 months later, the whole world fell apart and uh, it was, you know, a very bad recession, obviously. So, it's kind of an interesting way to to start my career. Yeah, so basically you started what is that's like spring of so like May June of two thousand seven. Well, so actually it would have been uh, December of oh seven. So I, I had a uh, hangover six hour okay. know, semester of kind of you know I guess it's not fifth year. That'll happen. So. so you went one more semester, so four and a half yeah. years, graduating in December. Yeah. Okay, nice. I graduated in December too. So yeah. similar deal where uh, at least, you know, I, I was just sort of like doing your own recruiting also mm -hmm. for that. So then you already had a foot in the door at Collier's, went on board with the asset management, property yeah. management team. So then when you, when you got that job, is that, did you have much of a, a plan? Like, so you wanted to be in real estate or this sort of, you just, that was your internship. You sort of fell into it. What were you sort of thinking back then? Yeah. I, so, you know, a year before that I did an internship in insurance. I actually oddly loved insurance, uh, more as a producer brokerage yeah. position. My dad said, Hey, try another corporate sales role. I, you know, found that, well, I wasn't in a corporate sales role at Collier's, but I uh, just fell in love with the industry. I was, you know, doing site visits, tours, you know, probably some menial filing and stuff like that, but really gave me a nice taste of the business and the brokers, the engineers, the managers, the whole, uh, you know, picture. So then the office you were in that the whole, let's say just the whole Collier's Chicago office, they were there. So you were doing property management, asset management, but mm -hmm. then like you, you saw what the brokers were doing, let's say. 
they're yeah, in the office. Yeah, so I like I work in the downtown office right now. I started in our corporate headquarters, which is in Rosemont, and we've got a huge industrial practice there. And actually, uh, even though I'm a multifamily broker now, I started doing industrial uh, medical office and then some downtown retail, which was really interesting because it gave me a different perspective of what I'm doing today. You started out doing that when you were doing asset management, property management, mm-hmm. those product types, or that was also where you started out in brokerage? So I worked in asset management for about four years. You know, the I, w- I was in the suburbs for a couple of years doing more industrial. We got a big break downtown, or my boss did, where we uh, won the assignment for 730 uh, North Michigan Avenue, which is very high profile asset, Tiffany and Company. It had the American Girl store in there at the time. Now it's a Nordstrom Rack Anthropology Peninsula Hotel over. So I got to do build out for manage build outs for Victoria's Secret and, uh, and Nordstrom Rack and Anthropology. And, you know, even though property management is the most important job in real estate, hands down, it's probably the most thankless um, yeah. and the hardest. And so what I really liked about that experience was more of the project management and kind of getting into the the meat of the deal. And, you know, we did a lot of financial reporting for our institutional owners, you know, and it's all about, you know, where's the NOI at working towards improving it and, and you know, really being operationally efficient for these properties, which translates into what I do today. And th- those are some, that's a really high profile building. Mm-hmm. I mean, Michigan Avenue. Chicago, I mean, I mean, one of the top, you know, stretches of retail in the country. Yeah. So in the near. For, and for uh, a very high profile, high profile owner, um, Amasio Ortega, who's one of the top, I think is a top 10 billionaire. Uh, he founded Zara. Uh, he was our oh, owner. Oh, really? So yeah. P- Ponte Gadea is their actual company name out of Miami. But, you know, it, it was a very interesting experience. Yeah. And then, I mean, any interaction with him or that's you're dealing with, he's got an asset manager. Never met him. We met his asset management team, uh, who, who was great to work with, but uh, he didn't come in uh, town very often. Like, so you're sending the reports or you're having calls with them. It's not, he's got an asset manager mm-hmm. running that. Thing. Yeah, they, they had a full team. But, you know, the, the, you know, with property management, we were, you know, you're coordinating day to day. Uh, with the ownership entity and then also with the hotel, with the engineers, with all the tenants. It's a lot to to juggle. And then halfway through that, we got uh, a medical office building across the street, which was like a completely different animal uh, on its own, but was, you know, equally exciting and interesting to do. And then you were also working on that? Yeah. So then at that point, you're, you're managing retail and then office? Correct. Interesting. Totally different. And then because the hotel that was there just doing their own thing. Yeah. So, so the hotel actually had an easement over the property. So, I mean, the funniest part about it was from a broker perspective, you know, most people think brokers aren't like, you know, that smart and can't, you know, do math. But uh, I actually did like, I think over 200 CAM and tax reconciliations as I was a manager. Oh, really? I did some like property (laughs) accounting too. Wow. Uh, So I went through so much brain damage doing these utility uh, reconciliations at that property. I hope I never have to look at one of those ever again. Oh, that's interesting. That's so then you would be one of the rare multifamily brokers who would know what a non uh, compounding cumulative cap is. That would be correct. (laughs) And a base here. Yeah. No, we still got some commercial deals. So that's the, we get into that. I still get into that too. Uh, But it's, you know, it's like once a year. So I just, Google it to it's, make it's sure. Good. I, I mean, you know, the what, what one of the reasons why I like real estate is, you know, everything we're talking about right now. It's a very dynamic job, and you know, whether you're a broker, whether you're a manager, an owner, etc., you have to wear a lot of hats yeah. uh, and and know a lot of different things about very random, you know, like HV. I'm sure you know more about HVAC 
than you probably ever wanted to know. It just kind of comes with the territory. And then it's also, it's interesting. Then you go somewhere else and it's, it's different. Mm-hmm. You know, we just bought our first property in, in Phoenix and in Tempe this week. And so we, Congrats. Like, thanks. Yeah. The, like it's, the systems are just set up differently there. Yeah. You know, where here, everything's just only forced air, at least in the deals we have, you know, it's obviously boilers are prevalent too, but you know, yeah, just different setup down there. But yeah, right. Was, I've learned plenty about HVAC and plumbing and just all sorts of stuff or someone will explain how this is a sump pump doing that. I'm thinking, well, actually that's the ejector pump, the sump <laughs> pumps next to that, you know, but like where this is stuff you wouldn't think you would have, would have learned when you were, you know, getting your whatever degree in real estate, yeah. you know, like we're I'm not going to be a pump expert all of a sudden. Sure enough, here we are with uh, hearing people mislabeling them. But nice. So then I guess then how did you transition from being on the property management side to then brokerage? Yeah, uh, that's so that was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. Even though I was in property management and, and, you know, doing fine, I had a desire to go into brokerage. I was or actually really be an owner from the institutional perspective. So I probably had 100 interviews. I, you know, went through this arduous process of trying to prove that I could underwrite a deal, which was really the biggest roadblock in me getting into brokerage. And I had a lot of heartbreaks in that regard. And then in 2012, after doing asset management, property management for, you know, four and a half years, we brought in a multifamily team and I started just kind of chatting with him in the kitchen and he hired someone instead of me. And then that person didn't work out four or five months later. And then I got the look. So I, I literally worked two jobs for six months transitioning from management you know, the, the problem was my boss at the time kind of let me run the whole portfolio and wasn't doing that much. It was hard to unwind that. Um, yeah, so you had a lot of management responsibilities. And then you ended up landing with the same, being a broker at the same company. Mm-hmm. So then it wasn't, you didn't, you never really quit. Where no. it was like, if, you know, if you had switched companies, you probably would say, hey, I'm leaving on this day. Where instead you're still at Collier. So then, the, you know, yeah, you're, it, it, you're, it, you're, you're, you have two bosses now. And they were like, that's yeah, fine. Just do both jobs for six months. It was yeah. not, it, I mean, it's not advisable. It's very, I mean, it was the only way I could get into that situation. Um, so it was obviously worth it, but yeah, it, it was difficult. And then what, when you said you had a hundred interviews, what is that? I literally was, you know, whether it's reef or I was just trying to get, honestly, I was trying to get out of what I was doing. You know, I spoke about the camera conciliations yeah. and it's, uh, you know, being a manager is a hard, hard yeah, job and you don't typically uh, get rewarded for your efforts or for saving your client that much money um, or right. boosting NOI or whatever. So it just, I never wanted to do that. Uh, it was kind of a means to where I got a stepping stone, really. So I just, des- I desperately wanted to get out of that space. Because then that many, there's, you know, that's why I was asked about it because there's not even a, not a hundred brokerages to go interview mm-hmm. at. So it's this were it was owners, owners, operators Got and it. brokers, you know, and, and actually the, the funny thing, this is probably around where I met, uh, I originally met you, uh, cause I was like ULI in Chicago, for instance, was really turned into one of my main conduits to, to yeah. kind of help get me in. Well, not necessarily into brokerage, but really take my career to that next level. ULI has been a great organization for me too. I did the mentorship program mm-hmm. i know you did we both did the chicago council thing mm-hmm. but also I, I did the mentorship thing i'm not sure if you ever did yeah. that i got hooked up with someone really great i was in the class that. before they stopped doing it because none of the mentees uh reached out to their mentors after me oh really yeah, yeah the mentor i got set up with his name's dave cocaine with Ver- yeah. vermilion oh yeah i forgot I mean, about I, that great guy he's really 
helped me a lot and a lot of great advice. And yeah, where he's essentially just 10 years ahead of where I am. So just great resource just because mm -hmm. you're asking him about something he already did. So yeah, I, I got really lucky in that regard too, because I had a, a lady named uh, Mary Ellen Martin, who was with Morningside, very successful developer. And, uh, and she, she's been great. Nice. I still keep in touch with her. Yeah. I still have questions for, for Dave. So they still, still my, uh, my, my mentor, you know, it's probably almost 10 years I've been, yeah. been bugging them. So nice. That's a tough transition, obviously. So you're doing two jobs, but then eventually once you switch to brokerage, now this is, this is a commission based mm -hmm. job. So then what did that look like starting out? It was scary. I mean, I had a, I had a pretty good salary at Collier's and, you know, benefits and my wife, I got married in uh, 2012. My wife thought I was crazy. She probably still thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> But it, it was, I, I mean, at the end of the day, and, and you know this, and most entrepreneurs know this, I mean, you have to take risks. And it was, it was a very interesting experience for me because my senior partner was like my big brother and, you know, for the first three and a half years. And then it just kind of, you know, like a lot of partnerships and especially in bro brokerage is a business where the old business model is old guys sucking the blood out of the young guys. And, um, you know, and I'll get into this a little bit later with my, the way that we run our business, but you know, that business model was kind of what I was working under. And it's very hard when you're on a hundred percent commission and you're on, you know, you get a draw that you have to pay back. And so there was a lot of heartbreak those first couple of years because I thought I was going to make all this money. And then, you know, on day 29 of due diligence, uh, you know, the deal would blow up. You know, I learned the, I learned that you have to have a lot of irons in the fire in this business uh, to, to really be successful because you're going to take a lot. There's a lot of, I have a lot of battle wounds and a lot of battle scars. Brokers who have stuck around for 10 years do. And then one thing to define, one of the things you mentioned, the, a draw. So then that's doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll go into that. So, you know, realistically, I'll just put this out there. So. You know, I was making like $80,000 salary, 401k, you know, happy as a clam. The first year I worked in brokerage, I made $19,000. So I was in the red. I, I think I had a $30,000 draw. So I was in the red $11,000. Yeah. So you owe Collier's 11000 at the end of the year. Correct. That you, you'll pay back with your commission income later. Yeah. So, so a draw is effectively, it's a salary. You get, you know, a regular paycheck. It really helps keep people afloat for the first couple of years. But as you make commissions, you have to pay back that that money. So actually, the hardest thing was two or three years in when I started to actually get my business going. I had a year where I think I was ninety thousand dollars in the hole to the company. I had a really big year, which was awesome. And then I got the tax bill the next year, and so because yeah. it's a it's a loan, you don't get you know taxed on that money until you pay it back. Oh, interesting. So I was in the hole. I paid it back, and it was just this kind of funny double whammy. And and then, and, and that's you know I would say from a, a anyone trying to get into brokerage or wanting to get into brokerage, you know it is uh, it's an emotional roller coaster. And if you can't handle that, and you're not a relatively level headed person, it can be a little dicey. Download our hundred plus page passive investing guidebook today. Accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities as well by hitting the invest now button on our website. Now back to the show. And it's interesting just to hear you talk about, so yeah, that, I mean, for, I mean, that's a great salary you had and set up and then, you know, then we, but you really, you wanted to go for it and mm -hmm. be on the, really like your goal at that point was to be on the ownership side. Oh, and then this was a kind of a thought like I'll, maybe I'm, this is a stepping stone, but now you've really 
done so well on brokerage. So then I'm curious, what were you thinking at that time? Because you're making a you're taking a big risk. Yeah, I, I think I um, I got into brokerage to sell high rises. That's what I want to do. That's what I've always wanted to do. Uh, and so whether it was an office tower or an apartment tower, I didn't really care. Yeah. That's kind of what I've always thought was, you know, technically the pinnacle of what we do. And so that was always the the draw for me. And, you know, brokerage, I, I don't know why, but I really like it. It is the, someone told me this a long time ago. It's the best job in the world if you're making money. It's the worst job in the world if you're not making money. Yeah. Um, because it's a lot of pressure, a lot of emotional duress, but it's rewarding because... You have a lot of time and a lot of autonomy. It just, you know, it takes a long time to get started and to get everything yeah. going. But as a as a broker, so you're setting up the deals, you're, you know, you're keeping them together. Like you're doing the, like the deal doing part. What's funny mm -hmm. is the, the, the buyer or seller, like there's a lot of like this other, like less fun work. Okay, mm -hmm. now we're doing due diligence. Like, so we're, as a broker, you don't need to read every word and every lease as a buyer you know, that would be, be smart to read yeah. your leases. Right. So 100%. then, so then you're doing all this work or you're applying for loans and then they need, you know, updated everything on all 30 properties you have. Like there's plenty of less fun work. That's mm -hmm. part of it. Whereas the, as a broker, assuming things are going well, well, great. Okay. That deal's going now. Great. I'm at this other one now. And you have a lot of, a lot of exciting stuff going on and you're mm -hmm. right in the middle of all those deals. But at the same time, there's a lot of, you know, I, the funny thing is like I, I've gone through uh, some hiring recently. Uh, we're expanding our team pretty aggressively. What do I really like about what I do? I like to go out and hunt and, you know, I, I have a spear in my hand. I'm out yeah. in the you know, jungle trying to, you know, find something to eat. And, you know, that that for me, the pursuit and getting the business is really what I'm here for. I'm here what you're saying. Where then there's people who are the, you know, they're the opposite of that. They want to, they like to follow process and not that, not that you're not, but just like they would rather be a transaction coordinator than the person making cold calls, chasing around high rise. Yeah. Orders. I mean, listen, we're, I, I'm not going to pretend like this is just me. Okay. Like we have a very, very talented team behind us, our back office staff, our graphic designers, our business intelligence analysts, uh, our transaction managers. I mean, we have really uh, a good team behind us. And without those people, we're, we're not going to be as successful as we currently are. And, and that's the hardest thing is keeping everyone together long enough to really, you know, make some some big moves. Okay, great. Well, yeah, I'd like to hear more about your team and get into that. I think probably first it would be interesting if, um, if you had sort of a, like, what would you feel like was your first break or first sort of deal that hit, you know, because where you're sort of surprised this is actually happening. I know I've had moments like that where I'm sort of surprised, okay, this, this is going through, it's happening where you're, you know, cause you start out and you're doing brokerage and then something eventually hits. Why don't you mm -hmm. tell me about that? Yeah. So there's two of them. I, I actually sold them to the, the same person, which is funny. The first one was two to eight East Huron. It was a 8,500 square foot land sites. It was practically impossible to build on. And Tom Scott from CA Ventures came in and built a you know 30 story tower on the property which was kind of a fluke and and i remember it, we got the listing in november i think this is literally the first deal i ever did and we closed it in like 35 days before or, wow yeah we closed it before the end of the year so it was very quick and then you know a couple months later i got the a, a building i managed which was just a deplorable asset it was uh, the old colony building it was unbelievable this is what the broker book said. Or uh, maybe, no, well, kidding. no, I, I mean, <laughs> I th know, this kidding. thing was a highly <laughs> distressed, vacant office building from like, you know, 1890 in, in the South yeah. Loop redevelopment deal. 
And we got that deal done with CA Ventures and Tom Scott also. And they turned it into a very, very successful student housing building called the Ark at at Colony. So nice. That's uh, those kinds of, you know, I sell large apartment buildings. When I get to get into a redevelopment uh, or like urban development, it's really kind of something I have a passion for because I get to play developer a little bit. But then those are two really large first deals Mm -hmm. then, you know, I mean, you know, where it's someone's. Yeah, they, they bought your first deal and built a 30-story building on yeah. it. Yeah, that's incredible. However, the purchase price wasn't that big. Well, it's a development but, site, but even that's a complicated deal yeah. to be starting out on. Yeah, really to deal with so. the aldermen and, and, you know, all the density challenges. I mean, it was uh, it was interesting. And then how did he, I mean, so he closed that in basically a month, so then it wasn't really entitled for what he wanted or already was? It, it, had, it, a, right? it had a uh, planned development on it already, oh, nice. so it was ready to go. Great. Nice. Yeah, that's that's interesting to hear. I mean, that and then what was the the that was a, the 30 story building that was office. Mm-hmm. What was the product? Type? Uh, it's an apartment building now. OK, nice. It's got a little retail and they, they actually somehow put a parking deck in there as well, which is just, you know, fascinating. Because what was the site like? It was really narrow or it was, it was really... a corner parcel. It was kind of like a rectangle. But okay. I mean, you know, usually in the city, the, the rule of thumb in Chicago is, you know, 15,000 feet is a a a small site for people. So most developers require that size or, or larger. And then, you know, it just gets very hard to uh, program the development around a tiny yeah. little parcel. Even because you said this is like 8,000 or is what? Yeah. I mean, yeah, then to be tight to build any, you know, right. How's the parking going to work or how are cars going yeah, to circulate stage in the, the garage? Crane and yeah. everything. Interesting. That's a challenging first deal. And so what, well then why don't we, why don't we jump to hearing about what you're doing today then? So you're yeah. talking about the team. Why don't, why don't you take us from maybe from kind of those first couple of deals to then where where you're at today? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you know what's interesting is, I mean, the senior partner I started under kind of planted the seeds for the where we get where we are today. He came from a large team at Cushman. They were very institutional. So you know when I started, I was running this small little practice where I was guy running an institutional process for middle market or smaller properties. I worked for him for about four years. Right at the end, uh, I met my partner who's based in Atlanta. His name's Will Matthews. And we just started talking on building something different because he had a similar situation with a senior partner that just didn't work out. And, you know, effectively, I started out, produced my senior producer and then was asked to take over my team. I was doing Chicago deals. I did a lot of redevelopment deals. We then, Will, started to collaborate on building this network of kind of was recreating what HFF did really well, but with JLL, that whole thing dissolved. And, and so a network of brokers who collaborated, shared information, shared real-time data. And, you know, if I talk to you and Will talks to you, we actually talk. So, you know, before I, I talk to you, I can say, oh, you know, Drew had, you know, a salami sandwich for lunch today. And, uh, it. you know, it's just a little higher level of service and awareness. Um, and how do you guys actually actually do that? You guys are like in the same CRM or is it actually it, just... No, it's... I mean, he's... My wife calls him my girlfriend. I mean, I talk okay. to him probably seven, eight times a year or a day. Um, okay. And so, you know, it was a little slow. We got some breaks on the front end in St. Louis, most particularly. So we started small in Kansas City and St. Louis and in Indianapolis and... The way that we're organized is we run a national, regional, local business model where Will runs our national uh, apartment practice with Colliers. I run our Midwestern uh, practice. 
And then we have local boots on the ground in all these markets. And so why does that matter? You know, most of my competition is very siloed. And to what I said earlier, they're not talking to, I guess, for lack of a better company, CB guy in Chicago is not talking to CB guy in St. Louis. And the CBI in St. Louis isn't talking to the guy in Indy. And so we're doing all of that. Uh, we are bringing capital into new markets on a daily basis. We're trying to run a volume-based business where I recognize that if I take 50% of my, you know, of the fees, and I used to do 20 deals a year, but now I'm doing 60 deals a year. Right. Theoretically, we're going to grow that pot and and become more successful. So, more for everybody. Correct. And then it's interesting. It's to, a non-selfish business model is what it's supposed to be. And then in, in a selfish business. Yeah. Normally people, they just work in one market. Mm -hmm. So then if you're a, a buyer and you're interested in checking out St. Louis, you, you, do, you sort of just reach out to the St. Louis person on your own. Mm -hmm. Whereas if that happened on, on your team, you would you could do it or you would, you know, throw it to the local person. That's what you were saying. And so like we have weekly pipeline calls. I mean, I talk to, I probably talk to every single uh, broker in all these markets every day or may, or try to make a point to, you know, it, it can be hard, but like the business has changed and people used to just farm their patch in their little area yeah. and own it. And now capital is moving across states and, you know, it's, it's a little cliche, but it's, it's nomadic. I mean, people are going to where the returns are and aren't as geographically uh, particular as they used to be. I mean, the old days you hear about like, uh, I mean, Sam Zell's got to start at the first, one of the first deals he bought was a hotel in Reno and he, he heard about it from like word of mouth or in a newspaper and then nobody was like looking at it. So mm -hmm. then he just went to it. It was just totally different, but like no one was doing hotels in Reno. Yeah. Like they, they didn't know whether the brokers, whoever it was who was on it, they didn't even know who to get to. Whereas now you could just look it up on the, uh, you know, Google Street, see it right away. Like there's so much more access to information It'd be a lot easier mm -hmm. to do that. Whereas for there were no, you know, in that example, it was, you know, it was like, just, he was like the only bidder. It wasn't like it is now. You have to go to it and look at it. It wasn't, you can just pull it up on Google and all the info on CoStar. It's, you know, at the, at the very, the most simplistic way of putting it, we went to places where there was less competition. And so not to give my trade secrets away, but I'm going into markets where there's one or two brokers. They've had 90% market share for a long time, and they've probably become a little bit complacent. And so we come in there, and we are much more aggressive. We have a larger buyer pool, and we probably have better marketing materials also. And not not trying to you know sound cocky by any means, right. but you know we really try hard and pride ourselves on doing a good job and being best in class. And so. It's just kind of, it, it's been kind of interesting because Chicago is such a competitive marketplace. It's, uh, you know, a lot of these markets used to be sleepy until a year and a half or two years ago. I mean, we got lucky with the timing too, because the, the great exodus of capital from cities into secondary markets right. uh, has, you know, it, is, is kind of mind boggling right now. And I know that you've been kind of poking around some, yeah. some new well, markets too. And I think for, you know, the markets that, you're you're covering when you look at the list like you're you're doing primarily the midwest and then you know so will he's covering he's the south southeast where is he yeah yeah so will um will covers the south like his his day-to-day -day is covering the southeast and really most of the east coast he's very active in virginia okay, uh, nice. and in that market but you know he's tasked with running our national practice too so you know he's getting pulled in on pitches in phoenix so you know, it's it's uh, it's been interesting with 
our dynamic, I feel like I've got a pretty good global sense of, you know, the apartment market, yeah. um, which is helpful. You know, I was going to get into was the, for at least for those Midwest cities, what around the time you started that, the assessor for Cook County changed mm -hmm. and sort of everyone's looking at what his game plan was, which is just essentially, you know, initially doubling, tripling, you know, mm -hmm. the assessed values, you know, you can still appeal and the board of review has been knocking them down a lot uh, from there. But that, that created us a huge flight out where, you know, I saw, I mean, basically it felt like in, let's say 2017, all these Chicago companies, they were just only Chicago. And then all of a sudden everyone is Chicago, Nashville, Florida, Chicago, Nashville, Phoenix, Chicago, Dallas, like it's all. And I mean, I think that was the biggest driver of it that created so much uncertainty where you just now, like what I think he was elected 2018 and then things are reassessed. It's in three different, you know, triennials, so mm -hmm. different, different rounds, if you will, one group per year. And then the group, like I own all my properties and that's, you know, this year. So mm -hmm. I had to wait for three years to find out what was going to happen. In the meantime, we start looking at other markets and that's what I'm sure you guys benefited a ton from that. Cause mm -hmm. a lot of the people you're calling on in Chicago, Cook County, they're going, yeah, it's hard to tell what's going to happen here, but it doesn't sound, doesn't sound great, at least on the tax front. So yeah, I'll take a look at that St. Louis deal. Yeah. 100%. You know, it's, listen, it's a sad state of affairs uh, and, and we don't have to talk about Chicago too much, but you know, the, the, the number one uh, issue with Chicago and Cook County right now, and I would probably argue that 80% of the capital just literally won't come here right now or Cook County. It's, it's all political risk. It's political risk. It's, and it, which means the tax risk too. I mean, the crime hasn't really helped very much either, but that's happening in a lot of places. But you know, the, the pan, the one thing the pandemic did was it allowed people flexibility to move to less expensive places and take advantage of a better lifestyle and maybe be closer to their families. And I think that's where a lot of these markets have, I mean, some of the rent growth we're seeing in in places you would never expect, you know, you're talking 10 to 15. If you go to the Southeast, some of these markets are 16 to 20% rent growth or organically. The boring Midwest and a lot of these secondary markets have actually turned into really good places to invest. It's been interesting. I have, a, I have an investor who his, you know, he has a, it's like a, he's got a consulting career and the firm he works at, they advise like fortune, uh, like 50 companies on different things. And they, they, all these large companies, they saved a ton of money during COVID where we're not having the office running. No one was traveling. And so now what do you do for this year? You want to keep your, you want to have your expenses grow mm -hmm. 10, 20%. So they've, they've not only, they've actually embraced the work from home or close the office, not, not for the reasons people are thinking, but more just sort of like, Hey, we can keep driving the cost down. Mm -hmm. So then, and actually the company he works at, they closed their they have offices in like every major city in the world nearly, and they close their Los Angeles office. And when you think of like, so we're targeting Phoenix as a play, as a market, you used Hot, to hottest market in the country. And there's so much lost to lease there. Uh, so just rents that are below market now, cause the rents mm -hmm. have ran up so much. That's one of the things we really love about it is you go in, it's an aggressive cap rate coming in, but you know, you can be in a year two, basically at a similar cap rate to like a, a deal in the Midwest. So that's mm -hmm. more or less our, our thesis on that real quick, but the, if you were in that LA office the company he works at is closed. Hmm. Phoenix is like a third of the price to buy a house. And it's, you know, depending on the time of year, cause the Phoenix got this thing where they don't change with daylight savings. It's in the same time zone or just an hour different. Yeah. Um, why not, why not give that a look? 
And then you can all of a sudden you can get the house you want. And you, and there's no, no, at least at that company, there's no rule. You even need to be near the LA office anymore. It's closed. Like there's not, there's no office to go to. So you just need to be able to work on Pacific time. I am fearful of what happens in three to five years with a lot of these office markets and leases turning. And, you know, obviously that's going to have some effect on the residential market, or it's just going to probably change the way people are designing buildings, even though it already kind of has. Phoenix is a great place to invest. The red states are a great place to invest. I mean, Nashville, Florida, Nashville, Florida, Carolinas, you know, Texas, et cetera. There's a reason why yeah. all the capitals go into all those places. And, uh, you know, and the, you know, but the, the dynamic, you know, you're going to pay, you're, you're paying in a lot of those places premiums that are maybe a hundred basis points lower than even some secondary Midwest markets. And then, you know, I keep beating the Chicago war drum because cap rates are probably 150 basis. But, you know, the, the, the risk is people perceive the risk as being real. Whereas in Phoenix, you know, the population growth, the sunshine, the, you know, there, there's a lot of really good things going on in, in a lot of these uh, red states. It makes sense. I mean, that's where, you know, the weather, you know, at least in most of these, the weather's great. Does You can operate a business there. The, you know, there's not talk of rent control, but moving there, like it's all, you know, everything's pointing to those, those states. And yeah, you're getting that. They want up. people to invest in their markets. I right. think that's, I think that's the big thing is, you know, it's like uh, Ron, whether you like Ron DeSantis or not, he had a uh, he had a press release the other day where he's like police officers that don't want to get vaccinated and are having problems in their areas. We'll give you five thousand dollars to come move down here and, and come work for us and yeah. we won't hassle you. And I think it's, you know, regardless of your political affiliation, it's just, you know, our society has kind of gotten a little sensitive. And I think that a lot a lot of people just need to take a step back and realize we're all trying to hopefully live our lives and be happy. So like Chicago, for instance, has been a little punitive on developers and on really its constituents and its population. And then these other places have been very open and the exact yeah. opposite, quite honestly. So Americans like freedom. No, I know. And I forgot what who it was, if it was Elon Musk or someone in California, they're having some issue. It was public information. And then on Twitter, both the both the the governor of Texas and for Arizona were both like tweeting out there. And and I think the mayor of Miami, like, hey, why don't you have this conference here? Or yeah. maybe something really I don't remember what it was exactly, but this is happening all the time with businesses going there or it was some sort of Bitcoin thing that couldn't happen in California. And they're like, come have it in Miami. And yeah. it's like, but then it wasn't just so the governor of Texas not taking this standing down here. You come here with a, we got a better offer where meanwhile, yeah, all the, um, you know, whatever the primary markets, the big mm -hmm. cities, the LA's, the Chicago's and New York's are just sitting back. Yeah. Okay. Well, that will, we'll lose that conference. That's fine. I think they're just getting in their own way. No, I know they, a lot of these places they've had everything going for it, you know, with, you know, California of all the sunshine and everything, you know, being on the ocean, great mm -hmm. for trade and every big city here is set up being on water. You know, with stuff that was important, you know, water for shipping, you know, super important a long time ago, mm -hmm. but they're just sitting back and getting their lunch eaten by these yeah, uh, so other states. Someone told me recently that cap rates in Phoenix are lower than Orange County, California. And, I, you know, that historically has never, ever been the case. And the reason, the reason for that is not, you know, like Orange County, the cap rates are low because it's, uh, you know, part of like a, like the number two gateway market mm -hmm. being in, in SoCal. But so Phoenix, those cap rates are low for a different reason. It's just because of the embedded growth in there. 
So you can, you know, if you look at where, where would your Phoenix cap rate be in five years with the growth they're having compared to the Orange County one, mm-hmm. you, you'd end up at a totally different place probably mm-hmm. where the Phoenix cap rate will be a lot higher. Makes sense because it's not as, it's not a, you know, like one of the whatever top three institutional yeah. markets, let's say. So it's a different, it's a different reason, but I mean, for, for me, I'd rather buy growth. So yeah, I'm not, so would I. I'm not worried. And then too, we have like individuals invest in our deals. So then, you know, California, there's a lot of, there are pockets that are good. I mean, Inland Empire has mm-hmm. some of the highest rent growth in the country, but you're paying so much more income tax as a passive investor on that deal. We we're sort of like, well, let's just put that, you know, on the, on the side of everyone else. Everyone wants to be in Texas, Florida, mm-hmm. you know, Arizona anyway. So let's, you know, let's focus on that. Even though Idaho is the most rapidly growing market, and and I think it was one of the top five market right now, just Boise in general. But it's funny to me that that's you know that who would have thought five years ago that Boise, Idaho would be a hotspot, which is you know part of that obviously is smaller market, so you know it can be moved quicker. Whereas like if I'm sure more people from California have moved to Dallas than to Boise, but mm-hmm. the percentage difference is you know totally different. But yeah, that minor, my understanding of this is all the Cali people hitting eggs. It's yeah. now you don't need to be here. So we can, same thesis I had with why you, they go to Phoenix. It's just, yeah. You can get a house for a quarter of the price or less than uh, California. And just have the, the only life. place where that's not the case is Austin, Texas, I think. Where what's, what's happening different there? Well, yeah. I, the only reason I know that is because my father-in-law just moved down there and, uh, you know, the, the housing market in that, uh, the, the, residential for sale housing market down there is ridiculous. My sister and my brother-in-law live there and they, yeah, that place is on fire. I mean, mm-hmm. just everything going for it. So yeah, you're, and so it's, a, it's a small, a lot of people don't realize how small, like Phoenix is a big city. Austin is a small, it, it, I'm not gonna call it a small town, but it's, it's a, it's a small market. It still has, I think a million plus people there, mm-hmm. but it's not, yeah, it's not like, you know, Phoenix where that's like a, that's a major MSA, but yeah, that, I mean, Austin is gonna, <laughs> The way it's growing, it's going to catch up to yeah, a lot of these probably, places. Probably yeah. will. Well, nice. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, this is the kind of stuff we're thinking about. I'm sure you hear about a ton from your your clients. I mean, maybe let's get into um, some of the markets you're covering. Yeah. Kind of what you're what you're seeing. So then let's just when you just take one of the markets you cover. Why don't you tell me kind of? Yeah, and and I guess just to uh, so you know I I I need to I probably should have this. Uh, I think it's I think we're going to transact in you know eight or nine states this year. We've done about. 600 million in sales so far, uh, close to 4,000 units. We'll probably end up close to a billion dollars in sales this year, probably, you know, call it 7,000 ish units. And so, you know, the market right now, for us at least, has been very interesting and bifurcated. It has been, we're either selling 1970s value add garden style stuff or class A luxury lease up properties. And it's been a very interesting dynamic. Because everybody would love to buy 80s, 90s, and 2000s vintage product, but most of that's been refied. Or uh, if you're lucky enough to find one of those deals, I mean, we we just sold something in uh, Jacksonville. Uh, I think we had 60 offer an 80s vintage value add deal. I think we had 60 offers on it, 15 in the best and final, and it went for like might have even been a sub three cap. It was a low three cap number, but just crazy. And so. You know, the, the 70s vintage product is in high demand because all the, you know, the rental rates across the board have just been growing quite, quite substantially. So like in Kansas City right now, 
we have a trophy asset under contract. It's like 250 a door. It's like a 4.2 cap. We sold a similar property in Chattanooga earlier this year, pretty similar cap rate and, and per unit. And we're looking at getting these listings in St. Louis right now that are 350 a door mid rise, kind of Chicago. It's almost a Chicago, well, it's a Chicago price for years ago or five years ago, but. You know, some some really big numbers yeah. in, in these smaller markets. But take St. Louis, for instance, and I'm biased because I went to Missouri uh, for college. But they have a they lost the the Rams a couple of years ago. That was a huge blow to the, the town. Yeah, they just got an M, uh, MLS team, a new stadium. There's a couple billion dollars worth of really interesting life science and tech development being done in the Midtown area. And what I've been finding out is a lot of tech companies from California and other parts of the city or the, the country are actually starting to set up shop in Indianapolis and in Kansas City and St. Louis and Columbus. You know, St. Louis has Jack Dorsey from Twitter's from St. Louis. He's bringing, uh, I think, a couple thousand people from Square and Twitter into downtown St. Louis, which is historically wow. not the right place you want to, to invest in that market. But it's going to be a huge shot in the arm. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, my comments about the kind of migration of people, uh, people are kind of going back home. And especially if there's tech hubs being opened up in some of these low cost markets, you know, you don't have to pay $2,000 a foot for your house in right. Silicon Valley anymore. You could pay $200 a foot in St. Louis or or really any, name the market. So that I, th I think that dynamic, and a lot of these places are much more affluent than you think they are. I've noticed that too. I mean, it's surprising, but there's, you know, nice parts of basically every city, you know, just for fun one day, I was looking up in Cleveland where, um, I think it was where Kevin Love was, was living, you know, just where there is saw some picture of his house and like, wow, that is insanely nice, that area. And there's like a whole pocket where it's just, you know, all these people that live, I think near, near the lake. And it's a, super nice and you, you know when you think of cleveland you think well that's more like a blue collar you know kind of whatever uh city but then sure enough i mean there's a pocket where people would have owned those businesses that mm -hmm. had the blue collar jobs or or whatever so yeah i'm not i'm not surprised you've figured that out yeah and and you know actually that's probably one of my more favorite parts about what i'm doing now is i get to go into some you know very yeah. different very you know we're selling something in manhattan kansas right now i sold something in ames iowa interesting uh cedar falls uh you know grand rapids lansing so it's you know bouncing around and and actually learning about why someone should invest somewhere and you know what makes the population tick and just you know, the demographic end of real estate, which is very, very important. I find it to be fascinating. Where you're basically learning a ton about all these cities. It's yeah. Like a well, it's like, I, I joke that it's, uh, you know, it's what it's working in housing is like one big sociological experiment. You go buy a 200 unit property. So, you know, sometimes you have to walk through all those units with the buyer and you go walk through 200 people's homes. You're going to see some very, you know, different ways of lifestyle. So. No doubt. Yeah, we yeah. Or I worked at Dominium. They, they did affordable housing mm -hmm. and we'd walk these deals. And yeah, it was just uh, saw everything you imagine. And then, yeah. some, you know, with this crazy setups. So, yeah, that's that's interesting. Let's why don't we just talk specifically about some market sense? Let's yeah. just pick one. Let's say. St. Louis. So then yeah. let's say I'm calling you. I want to know what is a, you know, I know people ask what's the cap rate, but there's so much yeah. in that. Like 
Is it value add? Is it in the suburbs, in the city? But just sort of walk me through how I think of the, the cap rate today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so core class A, core plus, you know, nice deals uh, that are stable or in lease up. And this is newer, like high rise type we're, stuff. We're talking, or- well, you know, we sell mainly garden style, which is a, you know, sprawling three story or townhouse kind of uh, property. When you get into an urban area like, you know, St. Louis, there's a little more mid-rise product, uh, call it six to, you know, eight stories. So the mid-rise product trades for a higher number because it's more of a type one or high-rise kind of constructed deal, which is probably pretty obvious. Um, A higher number, you're talking price per foot. On a a price per foot, price per unit basis, meaning, you know, the, the property we're selling in Kansas City Right now, Villas is about two fifty a unit. It's a little more of a garden style deal, but the deal in St. Louis is mid rise, and it's going to be about three fifty a door. And it's it's a more vertical property. It's not on fifteen acres. It's on two or three acres. But then, if you're saying core, so that's a newer deal in the city. So, what would the stabilized cap rate be on that? Stabilized cap rate on that is like a low four. It's probably a four and a quarter cap. Then, what size deal is that? Like dollar amount. That's, you know, probably a 40 to $80 million deal. Do you think, so then that's also now we're at an institutional size. So did you, would you, are you seeing, let's say a $5 million deal? Like uh, you've uh, a grasp on what the cap rates would be on that? Is it yeah, similar? Yeah, or? no, the, I mean, the cap rates are pretty similar. You know, I would say that for the smaller asset like that, you probably have to command a little higher of a cap rate. It might be as much as 50 basis points. I mean, there's a, as you know, there's a lot that goes right. into this, but you know, on, on the flip side of this, that stuff's kind of easy. The class A deals stabilized or lease up are a little more easy to wrap your arms around. It's, it's the, the seventies vintage value add deals, which like I, I'm underwriting a deal right now in, in North, uh, Western Indiana. And it's the numbers that we're underwriting to are ridiculous and I, and we can get, we can probably get the number. Like I have been constantly wrong all year on my valuations. Cause it's been exceeding. Cause we've been, we've exceeded. I think we looked the other day, we've exceeded our, our BOV numbers by three to 5% across the board this year. I mean, you know, you want, you have a nice 1970s deal in any secondary market in the Midwest. It's a three and a half cap uh, or, or between a three and a half and a four cap on the in place numbers you know most of those like like we underwrite back we do this a lot obviously so we know what return thresholds people are looking for so we're backing into usually we we go off of irrs and then you have to balance that with your per unit and your cap rate depending on how it shakes out but in the last 30 days we've got you know 3.6 cap and a 3.8 cap both in Louisville and Manhattan, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, Manhattan, Kansas. You try to get that up here right now. That same cap rate is, it's a five cap in Chicago probably, or 4.7. Yeah, I believe it. And then, I mean, and I understand why, so, but we'll explain why would a cap rate on a, which, uh, you know, to break down what a cap rate is too, just Mm -hmm. to try to back up one that would just be your, if you own the building all cash, it would just be your net operating income divided by your purchase price. So then that would be like what your cash yield would be if you just owned it Yeah, free and clear. So it's a way to compare properties because then the lower the cap rate, the more you're paying for that, that income. And so it's, you know, 
why would, you know, people aren't necessarily, they're not paying a lower cap rate. So assuming a lower return on a less nice building, it's actually, these have, they have upside. So they're going to do something to the property. That's why you're underwriting it on an IRR basis. Cause you're going, okay, this buyer is going to do, they're going to rehab half the units and it's going to be a three year hold for them. And they're going to sell it to another group who's going to finish it out. It's mm-hmm. going to be a value ideal deal again. And then what, what IRR would these buyers accept? And then that, when you look at what that is today, it's like, wow, that's a, uh, a three and a half cap on the mm-hmm. T12 NOI. Yeah. And, and, and really where you have to be careful is like this uh, deal I'm underwriting in, in Indiana right now. Every metric is good, but the per unit number is crazy. Yeah. Um, especially when you look at these things on the way out and where you go, okay. And we were, and we're seeing this in Phoenix where if value is there, I mean, COVID, okay, they exploded 30, 50% out. But even prior to that, there was a lot of the years because we have all the data as where it's 10% growth. If you just keep stacking 10 on top, you're looking at these exit prices, even in five years, you're like, wow, you're going to sell this townhouse deal for 900 grand a unit. It's oh, gonna- well, and, and I have, uh, you know, I, I joke around with my partner all the time that I'm in the wrong business because we look at, you know, especially our merchant builder clients. And that is, you know, a developer who's building their property to just get out of it yeah. and sell. I mean, so, you know, people were building their properties to a six and now they're selling them at a four. Which these are the, the yields on cost. So like the cap rate when you're done. So then if you like that, that difference there, that's like getting more or less almost 50% more than. Yeah. You you so some people are getting hundred to 200 basis point, uh, you know, uh, lower spreads on that cap rate which translates into lots and lots of cash in their pockets right where they're um, making on something like that five times the money they probably thought they were yeah, gonna then correct yeah because I'm, I'm trying to translate this back to dollars where yeah. if you say well 100 basis points yeah yeah yeah, talk yeah, about. yeah but that i'm fine but just to break that down too where you thought okay maybe we're gonna right build it to a six yield on cost and then sell it at a five cap so they're making a spread there because i'm in at a cheaper basis than mm-hmm. what i can sell it for but then cap rates drop another hundred plus basis points. Now all of a sudden I'm making yeah triple or four or five times what I thought. Yeah, I would. yeah, and and so you know that dynamic has been really interesting to watch because we've sold some properties where you know five years ago you sell it for ninety a door. You're like God, that's a big number. Yeah, and you know someone sold it three years ago for one fifty a door, and now it's selling for two hundred a door, and you're like God, how can you make this work and well, you know, the rent growth has been, you know, to to go to fundamentals uh, real quick, the the pro, you know, and, and I could talk for days about Chicago and the restrictions on development and, you know, what it's doing to rents in the city uh, in, in addition to the taxes. And you're seeing this across the board. There's a housing shortage in this country. We're going to deliver, I think, 300,000 units of uh, new apartments this year. They should be building half a million a year. And it, it's just, you know, nimbyism and government controls get in the way of, it's a simple supply and demand thing, build more apartments right. and the rent's going to go down. And, and it's just, you know, the rent growth you're seeing in all these areas because there's no new supply or restricted supply because costs are so high right now. Right. Uh, steel's doubled, lumber's still high, concrete's high. It's all having a real effect on the market and, you know, you're going to get good rent growth for a long time. Right. Um, because of that, I've always known that. I mean, with you know, anyone with a taking an econ class, when yeah. you realize like, okay, if you're going to do rent control or require a lot of affordable units, you know, in a city, 
there's going to be less units built, then that drives up the prices of the existing units. Mm -hmm. So then you're making your problem worse. I mean, just look at California. They have rent control. I mean, most all of the cities, it's statewide now, but with a really high cap. But that, and that's where, you know, traditionally rents and costs have, you know, gone up the most Mm -hmm. because there's so many restrictions. So you're getting the opposite outcome where, yeah, if they, if somehow you could boost development, that would make rents low, mm-hmm. not grow as quickly because there's more supply, which will keep the price down. Correct. But no, but no city is doing that. No. Instead, we require developers. Why don't we change from 10% affordable to 20% affordable units in the building? They go from the they go for the punitive approach versus the partnership approach, and I, I think the partnership approach is what should happen. Yeah, seeing that with those all the business relocations that we were mm-hmm. talking about earlier. Well, nice. So then let's say, so then in most of these Midwest markets you're covering, so then it's St. Louis, Indianapolis, Columbus, Louisville, let's say what, what other, let's say bigger Midwest markets. Do you Des Moines, have? Cincinnati. We've been poking around. Oklahoma is actually a pretty good market, surprisingly, in, in Omaha too. And then these are mostly all trading at similar cap rates. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, I, two years ago, I was joking around that everything in the Midwest was a five and a half cap. Yeah. I mean, it's, the the way that the capital uh, is reacting with the uh, with the market right now is you know it really is geographically uh, agnostic and it's more what vintage I would say that the vintage of the properties is is the main thing interesting um, that's determining you know the cap rate thresholds and the ranges and you know obviously deferred maintenance and you know things like that but. No, I mean it's it's pretty consistent across the board. I mean the the class C and B product is trading, you know, the value of stuff's trading in the high threes, and you know sometimes you dip a little lower for something really competitive and and great. The better the market, the lower the cap rate, right? Yeah. Uh, South Bend, Indiana, you probably can get all you know as low of a cap rate as Indianapolis. Interesting. Um, but people like meds and eds, so yeah. you got a good college. You have a good hospital system that bolsters the economy, bolsters employment, and, you know, kind of helps apartments. Yeah, it makes sense. I was going to go through each city kind of one by one and yeah. ask the cap rate, but they're all more or less, let's say, the same. We're in a low four cap on, uh, let's say, a core, more stabilized deal. And then these value add deals. So, And also the when you're using the term vintage, like that's, we're just referring to the age of the property. Correct. Yeah. And that's where there's, there's so much jargon, or then I do want to explain as much as I can, or someone could, uh, yeah, where we're capping yield on cost. And, and to, to uh, just explain that a little further, why, you know, why are people vintage sensitive and like 1970s product right now, people don't really want to buy it. They just, that's a lot, that's a lot of what's out there. You know, you have different building systems, you know, obviously older vintage. So there's probably some more deferred maintenance and capital that needs to be put into these properties. And then you have some obsolescence, like, you know, ceiling heights and things like that, that sometimes are impossible to overcome. And then really, I mean, to me, what we're, we're talking about the, you know, the difference in cap rates and the vintage, like it's, it's really more so those buyers are targeting value add deals. So we want to buy them and rehab them to some level Mm -hmm. to push the rents that, you know, you're not going to do that in a 2015 built property. That's still, it's too new. You're not, you can do some stuff, but there's a limit where a 1970s building where all the units are original like now we you can you can do everything there it needs laundry it needs a new kitchen it needs new floors it needs everything outside done it needs new bathrooms like that's what we're 
talking about more so i think we're, yeah we're talking about where people are you know going to put probably 7500 to 15000 a unit into it and take the old cabinets make them new you know new bathrooms new kitchens and you know bring the whole quality of the property up along with the tenant base so it's it's interesting that cap rates are so similar across because mm-hmm. i mean the places are they all have different nuances and one thing that you know i i mean to me kind of one of the biggest thing comparing markets is probably like the how the property taxes are handled mm-hmm. You know, one thing for just keep talking about Phoenix here, the that I love about Arizona, like they don't change your taxes when you buy. Mm-hmm. It's you just you get locked in at a number. And there's a five percent cap on how much their assessed value can go up. And what so most of these deals, you already know your tax number. You're not it's not a guessing game where there's a big difference between the different buyers and mm-hmm. what are they underwriting for taxes or it's a big risk in areas where it's just totally unknown or it's just a just up to the assessor almost and there's not a lot of rhyme or reason in some markets and so that's that's one thing where i'm I'm surprised that the cap rates are so similar because i'm sure the taxes are done differently in different places and there's different things driving employment and rents and how it fared in covid but it kind of all shakes out where it's trading very similarly that's really interesting i i think a lot of it is i i mean debt driven oh, okay. driven by the yeah. lenders i mean uh and, and then a lot of it is just everyone's kind of penciling the same returns. You're going to go for lower teens, mid-teens returns for newer products. The, all the value-add stuff is 20 to 25% is really what people are targeting. And this um, is a gross IRR on how, like deal level? Yeah. And then how many years is this? Usually, we're running usually five to seven. You know, we'll we'll do a 10-year cash flow. I mean, there aren't a lot of people planning on holding their properties for 10 years. Um, yeah, or these vintage anymore. ones, you're going to read, you're going to, it's going to be a rehab. So a 10 year cash flow from today is the, not helpful. The hardest thing I would say from underwriting the anything right now really is a terminal cap rate, which is your exit cap rate. Because, you know, I have been reading a lot and, and actually there's a great, it's a, well, I guess it's a podcast with Peter Linneman. Um, and he's an economist. He's a very interesting guy. And he's convinced the cap rates are going to continue to go down because of demand flowing into the apartment space. I, uh, I'll be very curious to see if that happens. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, why do people like apartments? You get great risk adjusted returns in apartments and they're pretty predictable. And, you know, your, your tenant uh, turnover costs are not, you know, crazy. But, you know, to kind of circle back to the taxes, we have... You know, I have to work in two markets that are probably two of the hardest tax markets in the country, which I would say are Michigan and Ohio. And so everywhere else is relatively easy and predictable. You know, we put it into the mill rate and do a calculation. Because they're just um, moving into the purchase price or that's... Well, a lot a lot of markets like St. Louis, for instance, will, you know, they'll take the uh, fair market value, what it's sold for. It gets assessed for 60 to 70% of that. Got it's it. pretty predictable. You know, Ohio is a crazy place, uh, especially Columbus. In Columbus, there are school boards that literally will go after you or the, you know, people do something called an entity transfer in, in Columbus a lot where they're just buying out the partnership or the entity to try to circumvent the school boards from going after them on taxes. And, you know, they they really are aggressively pursuing owners to try to get the taxable revenue. So, you know, you end up getting these massive uh, like 2X, 3X tax increases. Like I have a big deal right now we're working on 
And, you know, the taxes just absolutely decimate, you know, the ability to get the, the number that the seller wants. But are there buyers that would then they're going to underwrite where we'll take that property tax reassessment risk like we're willing to buy the entity. So if he'll do it, they'll do it as a stock sale. We'll we'll pay this number, which is a lot more. Yes. Uh, well, we are, and I'm not going to go into this, but we just learned an interesting strategy uh, yesterday where apparently people in uh, Ohio are condoing out like literally if you have a 200 unit property, they're con- parceling it out 200 parcels and dropping their tax rates by like 20 percent. Um, oh, interesting. So I think that, you know, the, the funny thing about real estate is, you know, people have to get creative right? Yeah. Uh, if you want the deal. So a lot of that's been, you know, there's a lot of creativity yeah. on the tax. The tax side is really the biggest risk most investors have. That's interesting because in, in here I've done some the reverse of that with the mm-hmm. condo thing, where if you take a condo building, you put it to an apartment building that was perceived as having a lower value yeah. by the assessor than a condo. That sounds that's so nice. But that that's interesting that then so then their assessor there thinks that the condos somehow they're they're. They're just assessed lower or the tax rates lower? I, 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 I think it has to do with how the school boards go after. Oh, it's yeah. not like a commercial property, okay. uh, you know, per yeah. se. And so it's just a little, it's just a little different, but you know, it, you know, taxes are, you know, a very, you know, you're ta- like, take Chicago, for instance, your taxes go up a hundred percent on your apartment building. You know, you can try to pass them through to your tenants, but it doesn't always work that well. Um, yeah, and I hear people say that all the time, and then I'll just jump in because this the I think everyone is already charging the most they can. Let's say for apartments, like commercial leases, that you that there's a a line item part of the triple net leases where the tenants pay their share of taxes, but so those are passed through. But on a multifamily deal, you're already charging the most you can. So how do you raise your price when your taxes go up? I don't think you can. Well, well, so uh, I, I love that you just asked that because I had a meeting on Tuesday uh, with a very good client of mine, and he is talking about adapting their, I guess, invoicing process. And they were they're going to start separating the taxes out of the rent number, okay, and and putting it on the the statements to show the tenants, like, look, we're you know, sure, your rent went up two hundred dollars, or we're asking for an increase, but like, you know, you're paying four hundred dollars a month in taxes to the city, and that, um, and so that's really more of like they're going to provide a, we'll call it a disclosure to the tenant. Here's how much of your rent is going to taxes. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's we're going to then break it out where now you're doing a base rent. Plus no, it's tax. not. No, it's <laughs> okay. like if you're paying twenty five hundred dollars, they're just going to say, you know, you're, at, you know, if you took your pro rata for your unit. You're paying four hundred dollars a month Got in it. city taxes. Yeah. So then, if you face an increase of a uh, hundred bucks next year, but you see your taxes, the owner's taxes went up two hundred, they're thinking that's going to be a good strategy, though. Yeah. I. I mean, I always wonder how much do te- how much do tenants really care? Uh, are they? You know, people care about their monthly number, whatever that number is. Um, and do people care that the that the city's charging them that a lot of their rent is going to city taxes or not? Um, oh, interesting. You know, I, I think that there's always this perception out there of greedy landlords and greedy developers and, oh, he's making all this money and owns the building. He can afford it. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize, like, all these buildings are, you know, whether it's a three flat or thousand unit property. It's just a little business and, you know, it subscribes to the same rules of every other economic theory, you know, where you can't spend more than you make. 
Right. Or a lot of them, I mean, they're owned by, you know, this is like a mom and pop owner, you know, where that's just, that's their only property. They're mm-hmm. living off of this and then having your taxes double or something that's catastrophic to them or, you know, people who they buy a property with a certain plan. I'm going to, um, looking to make this return. Then your taxes jump up and you're making half what you thought. Mm-hmm. I mean, then that's not, they're not going to invest in another one. They're going to, they're going to hit the pause button and that's bad for the whole market mm-hmm. i know we got a, a hard stop time today so i mean we got a lot more we we could get into and i want to so we definitely need to have a part two of this yeah i would love that yeah so i think what yeah because I, I definitely want to get more into the the markets i think it, that you're covering i think it would be interesting to hear about maybe a little more on how your team was set up where we mm-hmm. started getting into that and it's unique but then we sort of jumped to talking about deals today i think probably the like the one of the main things i wanted to ask you know i'm, I'm in the market so i kind of know what people are 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 doing but not in every market as a as a buyer today what what are you expecting let's say i'm we're going to go after a 40 million dollar property in in st louis what is what does that look like what kind of terms do i need to offer to be to be competitive besides price obviously the price needs to be there but it's not like the old days where you can look at it for 30 days and decide if you want to proceed i know yeah it's uh it started in the southeast in the sun belt and it's bled into every market uh, in the country and it's called hard money and which is non-refundable upfront earnest money that effectively protects the seller from any kind of wiggle or retrade or delay. It is, uh, if you're in a gateway market, um, and you want to be competitive in any kind of deal, you, ha- you almost hit, that's how people are winning the, the deals. Six months ago, a year ago, you had to, you could carve out title survey environmental. We're starting to see some just straight up non-refundable, you know, sign the contract. Here's a hundred thousand dollars. If we don't close the deal, we're losing the hundred thousand dollars. I just, uh, we just put a deal under contract in, in Lansing. Trophy asset, probably the nicest property in the state of Michigan. Uh, and we got $6 million in non-refundable money on wow. day one. And then, yeah, just so everyone's following. So like you buy a house, let's say you, you put up an earnest money deposit. That money, you, you normally you can, you get, you have a bunch of contingencies. You're buying a house, you got financing, you got inspection, maybe you got appraisal, title survey. The earnest money, it's just fully refundable until all that stuff is sort of meets your satisfaction. And then only after you've waived all your contingencies and you could lose your earnest money. The way a lot of these commercial deals are going down now is you're putting up that earnest money. Uh, what do you, cause that's what you're saying. Hard money. We're talking about the earnest money is non-refundable immediately. So just all this, so all the like homework and research you want to do on the property, you either got to do that before you sign the contract or you're doing it knowing if you don't like what you see, you're just walking away from your, your money. And on these big deals, yeah, it can be, you know, a hundred grand, like that one example or 6 million, like mm-hmm. the other. So it's a big, big range there. And, and so, you know, to answer your question, I, I think that to the extent that people are comfortable putting non-refundable money, it, it absolutely moves the needle, even if it's 25 or $50,000. You know, the other thing is, is certainty of, you know, if you can make the broker or the seller believe that you have certainty or the highest certainty of closing possible, that that's what this is all about because anyone can give us and you know I could write you a hundred right. million dollar offer for this building that we're in right now it doesn't mean I'm going to close at that number right um, and so the market is moving very fast and there's so much demand that's you know it's a seller's market so sellers have just said hey 
we need to mitigate our risk uh, to the you know to the expense yeah. of yours. And what and what are you seeing as a because actually for the size deals you're doing these dollar bonds you're saying are actually are a little lower than I thought. So this is a, some some of the earnest money is non refundable right away. Not all of it then. Yeah. Well, uh, how how would you what's like a percent would you say? So I'm gonna to win the deal. How much non refundable day one? Then how much is like functions like normal earnest money? Yeah, it's say? it's usually one to five percent. I mean the really big dogs who are trying to make a point put ten percent in. But you're talking about total earnest money, right? Total earnest so money. Percent of the purchase price. So I've seen it both ways. Most times the whole, it's just, you know, here's your earnest money. It's all non-refundable. It's either that, or it's like 20% of the earnest Got money it. is, is immediately non-refundable. So if you're putting, you know, 500 down total, you know, maybe the hundred goes, you know, at signing it's non-refundable. And then, you know, a lot of times there still is a due diligence period. They're still going through their inspection. Yeah. They just, you know, the whole purpose of of this mechanism with with the non-refundable money is, you know, you find out that there's, you know, some, you know, two hundred thousand dollars of issues. You come back to us. We're like, well, Drew, we're just going to take your earnest money that we already right. have. And so it obviously gives us leverage and allows us to pressure the buyers to to close. Yeah, that's that's one of the that's part of like how this, the building we're in now. We, I bought and we as part of that deal we were we were non we were like on normal due diligence we were at the contract signing we had already done it all so mm -hmm. we oh yeah we went we were non-refundable from contract signing on I think it was at least a half million dollars mm -hmm. but we still had title survey carved out um, we were assuming their loan so then there's no real financing risk a loan mm -hmm. we've assumed before type of loan you you can still usually get title survey and probably environmental carved out but like that Jacksonville deal I mentioned, if if you're getting just crazy action on it, it's it's just, you know, you're, you're going to get every single thing you ask. This market has been really, you know, from doing this for 10 years and being a sell side broker, I mean, th this is about as it, it's about as good as it gets from a seller's perspective as it ever has been. Right yeah. Now. Are you are you seeing people releasing earnest money to the seller? We have. Yeah, that. That is the real, uh, so, so someone said this to me recently, you know, and, you know, and they told me that 250 to 750 of heart, of non-refundable earnest money is the right amount. When you get over 750, people are going to sue you to get that money back or figure out oh, how to wait, but just because it's such a large right. sum, but actually, uh, you know, the releasable, I've seen it on only a handful of deals. That really gets people's attention because that and and uh, I'll I'll just explain it for you. Yeah. You know, release re releasable non-refundable money means you can sweep that money into your seller's bank account and it's theirs and they can spend it effectively. Normally, earnest money is held in an escrow account by the title company, and then really for that to go anywhere, both buyer and seller need to sign off because the title company doesn't want to get in the middle of this. But yeah, now if you want to get real aggressive on a deal, I'm, I'll do. Yeah, half a million earnest money, non-refundable and released, meaning like I'll just send it to your bank account. Send me the info. That's, that will get my attention yeah. every single time. I'll show you an LOI when we're done. We have a, a deal right now, 500,000 earnest money, non-refundable and released. Wow. And that's, that's you know, this is welcome, no, it's welcome a, it's to Phoenix. A <laughs> it's a seller's dream. I mean, yeah. I, I would say that that is the hardest thing to usually extract. You know, I'm in some small markets. Um 
And that's the hardest thing to extract. It's actually in Chicago. It's impossible. This is the only market I feel like where it really right now is extraordinarily difficult to get it because of yeah. taxes. And the thing too, as a buyer, you know, you don't, maybe you don't really know much about the seller. You're giving the money to them. If they just all of a sudden say, Hey, I'm not signing any paperwork. Come sue me. They're holding your money. Mm-hmm. Whereas normally you'd it would at least be at the title company. So then that, that to me is where the risk is. Yeah. It's, if it's not refundable, you're going to, your contract says you're going to lose it either way, but it's just a weird feeling about, we don't really know what this person's like on the other side of the table. And if they just all of a sudden say, Hey, I need another million bucks and they're holding your money. I mean, that's a, you're at a huge crazy situation. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, yeah. Well, thanks Tyler. Let's leave it there. We definitely need to have you back. Let's try to finish on those other, other threads we were on. Uh, how can, uh, Rise and Invest listeners get in touch with you. I am always available on my uh, on my cell phone, which is 847-975-8358. Or uh, easiest to reach me is probably my email, which is tyler.hag at colliers.com. Awesome. Perfect. As you can see, Tyler's definitely an expert at his craft. He's got his finger on the pulse of just a ton of different markets and a real great resource for us. So yeah, we're happy to, we'd really love to have you back on. Uh, And I hope everyone gained a bunch of valuable insights today. Thanks for joining us and see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us on the Rise and Invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. And the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.